For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching, God reveals to Jonah that there are areas in his life that he needs to grow in, specifically in learning to love those who are difficult. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Loving Those You Hate. Alrighty, good evening. Are you ready to dive back into the book of Jonah? We're going to finish up chapter 4, wrap up the wonderful lessons I might say before we even start that, man, the truths of the book of Jonah are perhaps the most challenging of all in the Bible. And uh, tonight we're going to revisit some of those essentials. So let's ask the Lord for some courage to face the truth about our little Jonah moments. Amen? (laughs) Heavenly Father, there's a little bit of Jonah in every human heart. We pray Lord, we, first of all, we confess, Lord, we fall short in our, the command to love, Lord, the way that you want us to love and the compassion that you want us to have for souls, Lord, especially those that we don't respect or like or who have hurt us or do evil things. It's just hard, Lord, and we just pray that you deal with us, Lord, gently and firmly and change us in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. So speaking about this challenge about uh, loving certain kinds of people, I wonder how certain Christians back in those early days uh, felt when they heard the news that Saul of Tarsus got saved. Saul of Tarsus was the champion persecutor of the first century church, the man who had wreaked havoc uh, among believers and their families Uh, in the early church. Well, he had gotten saved, and he changed his name from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, and he would become Paul the Apostle, now enjoying sweet forgiveness and a new life in Christ. But I started thinking today, in light of the truths in Jonah, uh, Saul, think about him. I mean, before he got saved, powerful, fierce, cruel, a Pharisee, a religious fanatic, a, a religious nut job, really. I hate to say it like that, but it's very true. In his misguided zeal for Judaism and God, he led the way to stomp out the name of Jesus wherever it appeared, on the lips of whoever, men, women, children, men, uh, you were in big trouble if he were around. So he would go from house to house, as the New Testament tells us, in a red-faced rage. And he would drag off men, and the Bible says, and women as well. This guy was crazy. I mean, put them into prison, but he didn't stop there. I mean, think about this. He was giving approval and casting his vote for, for Christians to be executed. He, at his hand, ultimately, uh, Christians, believers like you and I, were martyred. There. Now, you'll recall uh, the, that devout Bible hero in Acts uh, chapter 7, uh, the evangelist, the first deacon, one of the first deacons, Stephen, lost his life. I mean, I have an artist's rendering of that scene, and um, just to give you the impact there, uh, and, and, and he ended up getting put to death, but you know, who was it there noted in the scriptures, who was really casting the vote and kind of leading the charge to kill him, was Saul. He guarded their clothes. He said, I'll take care of your overcoats. You know, you guys are going to break a a sweat, work up a sweat. So I'll I'll guard your garments. Two thumbs up from me, a Pharisee. I give the permission, kill him. And that, you know, Stephen had that beautiful vision of the Lord Jesus standing and and him saying, hey, receive my spirit, Lord. It was beautiful. And Stephen's heart, Stephen's heart was all, uh, Lord, don't hold this sin against them, right? And guess who's listening to that? This guy, 
He's watching how he's dying and listening to his words, and he's having a little struggle of faith right in there. Uh, You don't see it until a couple chapters later, but inside he's wrestling, and he's coming to saving faith, and then we see it in Acts chapter 9. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Paul's preaching Jesus, and so many uh, praised God as a result, but many, I'm thinking, had to have struggled. In fact, it says in the New Testament that they were afraid of him and they they didn't want to receive him into the church because they were suspicious of him, you know? But that's not all. I mean, no doubt, they, how about those who just didn't want to have anything to do with the guy? How about his friends? How about his wife and his kids and his nephews? Right? Oh, Paul the Apostle. God. I, I mean, now he's Paul and he's preaching Jesus. Oh, I'm happy for him. Too bad my husband's not here. He could rejoice with us all. That's human. That's a human feeling, you know? And, and Mrs. Stephen was probably more godly than that, you know, if there were, were uh, Mrs. Uh, Stephen. Thank you for that. Well, we're going to continue still talking about that. Just think about. You know, before, and I hate to belabor the, fault, the, the, <laughs> the point, right? But pr- praying that God would stop this guy as a monster, right? They saw him as an evil enemy, you know, uh, to Christians, to Christ, the church. And, and they would be very happy to hear that, that that man, you know, some chariot came out of nowhere and run him over. You know, everybody would be like, praise God, you know? Or, or they swallowed, he got swallowed up in a sinkhole. Oh, oh, so bad, you know, so sad. Or he was struck dead by lightning. Instead, you know, they anticipated their prayers were being heard about this guy who's destroying us. Take care of him, God. <coughs> They didn't expect that God would strike out of heaven with love and save him, right? It was like, well, that's not exactly what we were praying for or envisioning that now he's coming to church and raising his hands and saying, praise the Lord. You know, now instead of uh, condemning him, you're forgiving him. And instead of God's wrath, he's going to receive God's love. So herein lies the message of Jonah. And the point which now chapter four is going to drive home the struggle when God is gracious to those we despise. Now, Jonah's lesson was, you remember when he was ready to die, he he got it. And he says, hey, salvation belongs to you. You are free to give it to whomever you please. And I will obey Well, that was the prayer there, that whosoever believes meant really whosoever (laughs) believes, whether that's an upright moralist, that's an unbeliever who who likes to have his life together and is a moral person as far as one can be outwardly, right? Or whether he's a bottom feeder. (laughs) There are two, (laughs) two ranges there, and they both cost the same. Jesus' death on the cross. So the message of Jonah thus far, to guard our hearts from hate and from writing people off and condemning them to hell when God would rather save them and use us in the process. Let's pick up at verse 10 of the last chapter. It's the last sentence. It's italicized here for you just to know that we have some context. So when God saw that the Ninevites had repented at Jonah's message, the word of God, When God saw what they did and how they did it, they turned from their evil ways. God had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Spain. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Oh, this is so good. (laughs) This is, I, I, I labeled this section 
the Jonah syndrome, the Jonah syndrome. Really, it just divides in half, chapter four. It's Jonah's problem and then God's object lesson to correct Jonah's problem and heal his heart, all right? So two, two sections to deal with. First of all, Jonah syndrome. Um, so what the problem is with Jonah syndrome is, of course, God's mercy to Israel's enemies made Jonah very mad. Now, if only the story could have stopped at the end of chapter 3 and verse 10. You have this preacher got over his personal issues, went in obedience, preached an anointed message to thousands of people and thousands of the bad guys, the capital of the, the, the reigning government at the time, falls to their knees and cries out to God, and, and the city is spared, and there are hundreds of thousands, really, well, 100,000 or so uh, brand new believers in the Lord. That would have been a really noble way to end the book. Instead, we have a disturbing, upsetting, confusing, convicting ending. Doesn't end well, right? It could have. It always can. You know, he gives us that option. And so the opening chapters recount the details, of course, how Jonah's tremendous effort uh, efforts to avoid any part of the process at all that could result in good for the Ninevites, right? The international cruel bullies, all right? He doesn't want any part in that. So now in the closing chapter, we see just how upsetting and repugnant the whole idea of the Assyrians getting saved and Jonah being an, an, an implement, you, you know, a, a, a utensil, if you will, in God's hands to do that. Uh, he really doesn't want any part of that. Now, the word of God was preached, and the bad guys repent, and the Lord relents from sending the calamity. So 40 days are coming and going, and he's getting the picture. Jonah is that nothing bad is going to happen, and he also sees them repenting, and he knows what that means, Right. And so the Hebrew expresses Jonah's reaction to God's, God granting them mercy in the strongest possible way. You cannot say it any stronger. Here's what it says literally in Hebrew. It became evil slash wrong to Jonah as a great evil slash wrong angered him. That's what it says. So, so he's mad. He, he's very, very upset and I, I mean, he's infuriated. How could God do such a thing? Uh, this is not right. That's what he's thinking and saying. How, it just doesn't make sense. These are terrorists. These are Israel's enemies. They hate God. They hate us. They want to kill us. And you saved the whole bunch of them. That, that's just not right. It doesn't make sense. It makes me mad. So mad, I wish I was dead. I would rather not live, than live in a world where I have to call those guys my brother. I'd rather not go on, if you don't mind. And sometimes I think that God was saying, you say that one more time, I'm going to take you up on it. All right? So the reader is disturbed. We're surprised and perhaps a little bit convicted, but we're shocked. A man of God preaches, you know, powerful anointing, thousands repent, uh, a very dark and wicked city, you know, uh, get right with God. And then we expect to read, don't we? I did. Then Jonah rejoiced and was exceedingly glad, saying, you are the great and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and a God who'd rather save than destroy. That's what you picture him saying. Instead, he's going to complain about God's goodness. To God. You know, there's a Yiddish word. That's kind of a European, Europeanized Hebrew. Um, chutzpah, right? That's what it means right there. Is that not only are you going to have a bad attitude, but you're going to share it with the Lord, you know, in prayer. So that's chutzpah. That's a lot of nerve, all right? So... Um, Jonah takes his bad behavior a step further. He's not just going to maintain a bad attitude and sulk and nurse his resentment, but he's going to take it up a notch and he's going to give voice to it and take God to task. Now, I had this friend, let's call him John, because that's not his name. 
<laughs> right? I'm just a little concerned. Usually I use their name, but you know. It was back in Bible school, but I just, it's not a flattering story of him. And he came to me one evening. We were just walking. It was beautiful, Bethany College, and the stars were out. It was just beautiful summer-like evening. And he said, you know, I just went into the field, and I just really told God off. And, and that's the polite way of saying what he told me. And I remember looking at him and thinking, that is a really dumb thing to do. I, I really don't. I mean, I was just like standing back going, tell me more. <laughs> you know, I just don't want to be around somebody who's just, you know, in God's face like that. Listen, it is one thing to, in honesty, share your true emotions with him as a struggle. Lord, I can't even believe I'm feeling these things. Yeah, I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. Oh, that's fair game. God's a big boy. He can handle our emotions when we bring them reverently. Honestly, with respect, he's the God of the universe, right? We can't just forget about that. You know, we tend to just get real casual, especially in, in some of our denominations. We're pretty casual ourselves, you know? But let's not forget the fear of the Lord, you know? And let's not tell God off, all right? Share your emotions, but I don't recommend anything more than that. Amen? All right, so uh, a very different prayer arises now from chapter 2. You remember chapter 2's prayer when he's in trouble and when he needs the mercy and when he needs a second chance uh, because of his own sin and rebellion. Oh, the prayer is so different. Listen to the prayer earlier when he's the one who needs help. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Help, I'm going to die. Oh, save me. I've learned my lesson. Oh, I was so wrong. I'm going to be a good boy from now on. I promise. It's that kind of thing, right? Oh, oh yeah. And now, right? Now, listen to it. I'm going to paraphrase it, okay? So he takes his case to God in prayer. Here's my little paraphrase. It's an extended paraphrase. <laughs> oh, Lord, didn't we go through all this when I was at home, when you were prompting me in the first place to come here? I didn't want anything to do with the plan that could benefit those wicked Assyrians, and I told you that. This moment is exactly what drove me to get on a ship going to Spain. I know exactly how you are. And I kind of sensed that this was coming. For you are gracious, compassionate. Uh, uh, he's mad about it. You're compassionate. You're gracious. <laughs> this is a terrible thing, you know. <clears throat> Slow to anger, overflowing with love. I know who you are. A God who'd rather save a sinner than destroy him. So, oh Lord, I get it but please just let me die because I prefer death over seeing Israel, Israel's enemy enjoy forgiveness and your love. So just kill me and end my misery. <laughs> Signed, Jonah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I know. In a world which God... Uh, a world in which God forgives even Israel's enemies is a world Jonah does not wish uh, to live. And so he justifies himself. Look at, your, look at the prayer. Look at your text. He said, he's saying, in, a, in essence, God, cut me some slack. You know why? Because I was honest with you. I was up front. I told you my bad attitude in the beginning. So you want to not hold me to account? Isn't this what we talked about? I told you right from the start. This isn't my gifting. This isn't my calling. You've got lots of prophets to choose from. Uh, how about Jeremiah the weeping prophet? He's got a soft heart. He's Mr. Softy in there. He'd love to go. Call on him. How about Elisha? Elisha is famous for being a people person. He's a people person. Get somebody like him. I'm one of those mad dog prophets. I just don't, I don't like them. It's not my calling. It's not my nature. You know, how about a guy like King David? He was one of those turn-the-other-cheek fellas, you know, and he was. Saul, trying to kill him. And he had many opportunities. And he's like, I will not speak ill of God's anointed. 
He had many times he could have killed him. And he said, I won't lift a hand. I won't even say anything bad about him. Why don't you get a guy like him, God? Why are you picking me? Because your hard heart qualifies you for this particular task. Because God sees, I need some transformation in the Ninevites. And I need a prophet. Oh, I have a prophet who, has a, who needs also transformation. Hmm, God says to himself, what a nice combination. And I just want you to stop and think about your own life here. Because I thought about mine. How God crafts uniquely a trial or a relationship that is so perfectly fit to draw out my weakness or my dislike of something or my comfort zone. He knows just how to target it with a heat-seeking trial that just comes... Why me? Why, why do you have to send that one of all the troubles and all the people and all the situations in the whole world, how could that one thing possibly come to me? Because God is working all things together for good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? The next verse that everybody leaves out. For God has predestined us, his purpose, working all things good for to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to be as loving and kind and patient as Christ. That's God's purpose. So when he sees something wrong or, or, or you're insulating or you're doing your thing or you need to grow, he designs, knits up this perfect thing that's going to confront you right in your face about that thing. That has been 36 years of God with me. I'm like, oh, funny, God, of course. You know, for one thing, I got saved and said, well, the one thing I will never do is speak in front of an audience <laughs> because I could never speak. I failed all my, my speech classes in high school. I just didn't do them. I was phobic. I, could, I just freeze. I would go up in front and just freeze, and I would have all kinds of problems a week before a speech. So I just told him when I got saved, look, let's just, uh, I, I'll tell you right now before you ask, no. <laughs> just like Jonah. And what does he do? He says, my surprise, I'm going to make you earn your living standing in front of audiences. Your whole life, that's all you're going to do is teach and preach. <laughs> you just don't tell him, look, there's something I can't do and I don't want to do it and I'm not going to do it. And he goes, okay, here's the whale. You know, <laughs> it's a perfectly crafted cross that he brings your way and says, welcome, get up on it. Get up on it. And Jonah needed to love people in God's way because he represented God. So he had to reflect the character and the nature of the one he represented. So God brought him across and said, listen, listen buddy, we gotta grow here. And, uh, but we don't see it happening in the prayer yet. So God re responds three simple words in Hebrew. He asks questions and he loves to do that. You know, he says, in Hebrew it's three words. In English more, he says, do you have a right to be upset? And here's what God's saying, Jonah, Jonah, you're angry for no good reason. And he says, think about that. Just think about it, would you? You don't have any reason to be upset with me. None. But it goes on, unfortunately. Five to the end. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. Now, God has spoken in response to his prayer. God gave him three words to think about. You don't have any right. He wasn't asking him a question. He was saying a rhetorical question that's making a statement. Jonah, stop this. You have no right. You have no cause to be upset. Think about it. Connect the dots. Do some praying. Get over this. Right? Is there, we should be reading. And then Jonah said, aha, oh, sovereign Lord, you are right. I am wrong. I understand no, 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 we have to have an object lesson. We're going to practically scorch this guy into the dirt. 
Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, ignoring what God just said to him, all right? There he makes himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still holding out. (laughs) It's still 38 days. There are two more days or whatever. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided, he's a good provider, isn't he? (laughs) A scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die again (laughs) and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But But God said to Jonah again, do you have a right? to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord says, you've been concerned about this vine? You didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Okay, let's talk about that. So we've seen the Jonah syndrome, right? A very ugly, small-heartedness of a man of God, supposedly representing the magnanimous love and mercy of God. And and now we've got the object lesson from God now um, that's designed anyway to help him see how small his heart is and, and, and possibly grow and get some healing. So chapter four here juxtaposed is Jonah's terrible attitude with God's wonderful compassion. Now, Jonah could have taken that three-word admonition and meditated, as I've said, and uh, really said, no, Lord, you're right. I don't have a right. But he's going to force God's hand to wrestle this dude down until this guy's gonna tap out. You know, there's just a lot of people like that. You know, you, you just force God's hand to discipline you until out of your mouth will come. Okay, okay, I get it. Uh, okay, he tried that once with him and he got him to go physically outwardly, but not the heart. The heart wasn't there yet. So he, he has more work to do. My, my strategy with God is give God little as possible motivation to have to wrestle you into obedience, amen? I don't know, I'm just growing up and learning things. (laughs) Now, what if he would have said, you know what, God, those three words, they tore me up. I had a vision, I see how stupid I've been and proud. You know what, I'm gonna go down, you could have been reading this. I'm gonna go down there and I'm gonna sit with the king and I'm I'm gonna do some teaching. And I'm going to go down and proclaim the word of God. They don't know anything beyond getting saved. They have the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to make sure that they get started off on the right foot. And maybe if he had done something like that, it would have spanned. They, they, they repented for about 150 years. And then they were destroyed, according to Nahum's prophecy, because they went back to their old ways. But 150 years is pretty good for for that region of the world to walk with God. Um, But, you know, I just pictured him saying, hey, I'll go down there and I'll sit with the the king and and just affirm them. Wow. Didn't happen. Uh, Jonah gets situated now in your text that's on the screen. So instead of the fantasy of helping them, uh, here now, in spite of God's clear rebuke, he gets himself positioned nice uh, for some spectacular fireworks he's hoping to see. Uh, some cataclysmic judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah style. That's what he's looking for. Uh, and so now, according to your verse, uh, he has passed through Nineveh, west to east, 
It takes about three days, right? We, we heard. Uh, he's found a nice lookout spot, and he's been there probably for a month or so, waiting for the big boom, right? So now he makes himself a little makeshift shelter, right? Now, wood is really scarce there. And in fact, they have to import their timber, right? It's a desert region, right? And so uh, he's, got, he's got a crude shelter. It's uh, rocks and shrubs and, and branches. It's inadequate. It's blazing hot. It's the Middle East sun. So he's roasting and sweating away, resisting and waiting and hardening his heart. You know, he's looking for some volcanic eruption <laughs> somewhere. And, and he, it, he really, so the Lord goes to work at Operation Rebuke Jonah. And here it goes. Yeah, for, for like the third time in the story. Uh, God causes this fast-growing vine um, to come up with overnight with big green leaves that kind of offer some shade, welcome relief. Now, how is that possible? What kind of plant does that? A plant that God provides, right? That's the answer. You know, there's the castor oil plant or there's this gourd and and they give the Latin names. It could have been this and it grows pretty fast. But then, you know, does it grow up overnight? I really don't think so. Now, if you said it grew up over the course of a month, yeah, that's okay. But don't try to tell me what kind of plant grows fast because it's a plant God provided. That's the word. God provided, and he's done a lot of providing in this story. He provided a storm. It was a God storm. It wasn't just a, why was there a storm at that time of year? Because it was a God storm, right? God provided the fish. What kind of fish could swallow? A God fish. A God provided fish, right? It goes on and on and on. God prepared now a gourd plant. You know, in the King James, it says gourd. It's some kind of vine. What kind of vine? A God-provided vine. Well, how is that possible? I've been down this road with you before. Are you going to make me do this again? Because I will, all right? How is it possible that a virgin has a baby boy? Explain how seas part and how someone can speak and make a planet, all right? Is there anything scientifically possible in the Bible related to God and his provision? No. You either take his word as his word by faith or st- and stop trying to come up with all the scientific explanations. Well, perhaps maybe it was like a shallow part of the Red Sea. And, and you know, it just was like a sandbar, but nobody could really see it. And it was a windy day and it looked like it was splashing up. Come on. That was like a deep bay of an ocean and God split it in half and they went through because it was a God appointed miracle all right can I move on now thank you (laughs) serious so he's overjoyed at the natural awning that this plant has provided verse six now after just one day of falling in love with his newfound awning um, just enough time to enjoy its shade right Dawn the next day, verse 7 says, just as the sun begins to climb up into that Mediterranean-like sky, God prepares something else. And the word is designated. He designates. What does he prepare? He prepares a worm, right? Now, what kind of worm was it, all right? Oh, don't do it to me. Do not even think it, because I heard it in my head. Now, what kind of worm could that be? You know, a God-provided worm. This one says designated. God designated it, created it up. It said, this is a little worm with a very big appetite, (laughs) all right? It especially likes big, green, luscious leaves, all right? So it had a real field day. Now, I thought that was funny for some reason. The vine, the little pest, the little guy inflicts injury, to Jonah's cherished covering. In verse 7, the vine withers up, falls over to Jonah's dismay. As the vine comes down, the sun comes up, and nothing like a little heat stroke to get someone's attention. So God prepares again something called, they call a Sirocco, 
which is an eastern wind that comes up from Africa, like the plains of the Sahara, right? It can reach hurricane, gale force winds, all right? But only it's like your blow dryer, all right? Yeah, you know, can you imagine on the hottest day of the year having somebody take out 10 blow dryers and put them on hot, hot and just blow the air on you? That's what's happening. That's what's happening to him. It's just terrible, right? But you know what? He's asking for it. He is asking for it because God has already spoken to him. Well, you say it's only three words. How many words does it take? If God speaks a half a word, if he speaks one letter to you, that letter has significance and we need to respond. Why will you push God's hand? Why would I push God's hand into action against our own best interests? All right, just a thought. God prepares this wind, this nasty, fierce, howling wind. The Lord has to melt a cold heart. So sometimes to do that, he turns up the heat. Uh, The Bible says it was a cloudless day and it was bright blue skies. And your text says the sun beat down on Jonah's head. And I just pray that that dude had some hair, all right? Because, oh, man, you know, I was doing the baptisms out in the sun. Oh, my word. When you have no protection, oh, wow. You know, you start seeing double and all kinds of things. And so he's, this guy's in trouble. He's ready to pass out. He's angry. He's depressed. He's delirious. And there, here it comes again in pure Jewish sentiment. Oy vey, just let me die already, he says, which he'll repeat again for the third time. You know, it's very Jewish just to say, all right, I'm done already, all right? So (laughs) I'm having a good time up here. Don't get into a standoff with the Lord if you could help it. Now, uh, God's going to bring it home now. You ready for this? Here comes the lesson. God asked him a, a similar question. But he's setting Jonah up to incriminate himself. Well, you know, what, what else can God do? To the pure, he shows himself pure. To the crooked, he shows himself shrewd. What does that mean? It means you play straight with me, I'll play straight with you. You play games with me, oh, I'll beat you at your own game. Oh, you won't even see what's coming. I, I, I can move 10,000 times ahead of you. I know what, what you know? He's just saying, play straight, and I'll be straight. Play games? I'll play games. I'm good at games, and I win them. Mm. So that's what he's saying there. Now, verse 9, he says the question, similar question. Setting him up, framing him, because he's going to use it to help him. Do you, he says, do you have just cause? Do you have a good reason for all this? You're mad about that. You're mad at me now about the vine. Because Jonah knows, hey, look, God, God's not done with me yet. He blessed me. Because he knows this, that was miraculous, the awning. And then he also knows, well, what happened to it? Why'd you take it away? You know, so now he's mad, right? And, and, and at God because of the vine. So God just says, do you have any right to be mad about the vine and me? You're all angry that I took that away. It's a vine. Do you have any right? And he says, I do. Angry enough to die. Well, here comes that important question. God's question to Jonah is serving to ask a larger question to a larger audience. Before I tell you what that question is, let me remind you that in the Bible, the way that God helps us to receive truth is by asking questions. Always, from the beginning. Adam, where are you? Let me assure you that God knew where Adam was, all right? So it's a question to draw out of Adam an answer and to come to a conclusion in his own thinking, in his own soul, what have I done? Well, I'm hiding. Why am I hiding? Because I did what well, well. See, he's drawing out of him so that he will understand. Elisha's running from Jezebel. He's lost all faith in God. And, and now he's, 
hanging out in the hiding. And the Lord says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Once again, let me assure you that God <laughs> knows exactly <laughs> why Elisha is there. He's asking a question. What's a guy like you doing in a place like this? Hiding, running, what's up? What, what's happening, bro? Talk, talk to me, right? Jesus did the same thing. Jesus was always asking questions. Oh, my word. A hundred questions in the Gospels, Jesus asks. A hundred that are countable. There might be more. Questions like, who do people say I am? Just curious. <laughs> who do you say I am? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? Question mark. Oh, that's a good one. Would you light a lamp and put it under the bed or under a basket? It's pulling you out, right? You're the light of the world. Would you put a light under the bed? Connect some dots there. It's so much more profound and deeper and longer lasting when we come to the truth on our own. He's helping us, right? But if you just tell somebody, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z, that's the truth. That's not how God operates it. We have to come and reason ourselves, and that's why there's a lot of questions. Who's asking Jonah a lot of questions? For that reason, dude, you gotta, you got to make the connections here. Nobody's going to do it for you. People have tried, and it's not working. So let's kind of draw you into answering the own your own question. So here's the larger question for the larger audience. Do you have any right to be mad at anything I do? Do you have the right? Is there just cause to be bent out of shape about how I allow, what I allow, how things are turning out in your life? Do you have any cause to point a finger at, at me, the living God, and say, hey, you, do you have any right at all? Do you have cause for that? That's the bigger question. Is there ever any right for us to judge God? Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book called God in the Dock, right? And in the dock, the dock meaning the witness stand or the, not so much the witness stand, the place that the accused sits or stands is called the dock, right? So here's what he said. In ancient times, man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approached the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the hot seat. Man is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits things like war, poverty, disease, Bad things happening to good people, Christian people, and so on. Oh, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important main thing is that man is on the bench and God has been placed in the dock. You know, God, I will serve you. I'll, I'll be in the church. I'll do whatever you want unless you do certain things. If you cross the lines, then I'll retreat, I'll drag my heels, I'll wave my finger, I'll throw my temper tantrums, and you'll be lucky to get me at church once a year. Because I have the right to judge you and tell you how you should be directing the world, my life, the church, and everything around. So just watch yourself. I'm good now, but just, just stay straight. Right? Sometimes? Yeah, that's not cool, right? Let's just be real. Some say, I'll just, I'm going to keep believing and uh, obeying when things are good as I see them. So here's the question to Jonah. Jonah, do I really need to explain myself why I needed you to go uh, to Nineveh with the right attitude? Why I want to forgive people and see them live and not die? Do I really have to explain myself? And, and the funny thing about God is he does. 
He does. He, he just is so patient, so kind. He puts up with such nonsense from us and, and the nerve that we have. And he, you know, he's really patient. He's really kind. And so uh, Jonah says, yeah, you do, <laughs> essentially. Yes, you do. You need to explain yourself because I'm stinking angry about this whole thing with the vine, you know. So God is going to make a closing statement now, right? And here we go. Here's a paraphrase. So God says, let's be real, Jonah. You're so invested in this vine and so distraught over it being destroyed, yet you didn't have anything to do with it, creating it or nurturing it. The only reason, Jonah, that you're upset is because it no longer meets your needs. It doesn't comfort you or serve you or give you immediate gratification. You think its destruction is unfair, and that's why you care about that dumb plant, because it only matters because it gives you comfort. So let's compare Nineveh to your silly vine. 120,000 eternal souls, people who cannot tell their right hand from their left means this, people who are groping around in the darkness, pathetic, in a big tragic train wreck, they couldn't get out of harm's way to save their lives, helpless, pitiful, without sense, lost and perishing, that's what it means to not be able to tell your right hand from your left. But your little plant, it's a big deal to you. And another thing, even if it were just the many cattle in the city, they are worth more than your trivial little vine that you become so attached to. So by your own standard, I should save the city just for the sake of the cows. That's an understanding of what's going on there. The whale was a gift to save him, and the climbing vine was a gift to relieve him from his suffering. Uh, He didn't deserve it, right? And the Ninevites didn't deserve salvation. But Jonah's okay when it comes to blessing him and being merciful to him and being uh, ready to overlook his shortcomings, but not those who he looks down on. And my problem with, the, with this whole subject and where I fall short so much and pray for me is looking down and writing people off so quickly because I disrespect what they're doing, right? Can I tell one more story on me again? Because it happened again. How many of you heard the... the, the the Planned Parenthood protest confession. <laughs> All right, here's another one. <laughs> and I'm in the book of Jonah, and it's after I confessed it to you. I'm riding my bike. I'm wearing a helmet, just so you know. I'm riding down the uh, Mendocino, and I'm in front of Chick-fil-A. And the chicken lady's out. The chicken lady is, has a sign, and she's protesting the killing of chickens, the murder of chickens. Chickens are people too. Now, oh, don't fall into my trap. I already fell into it so that you won't fall into it. So I ride past and she yelled out something and it's kind of like that. Really scary and chicken-like. And I turned around. Now, she's engaged with a car, and the car's got their window down, and I can tell they're in discussion. And I pull up and interrupt them, right? Because I I just say, I just have one question for you. And she said, yes. And I said, you know, why aren't you at Planned Parenthood? Why, Why aren't you so concerned? And she, of course, said to me back, because chickens are of equal worth as human beings. Well, I took my pen and I took out my piece of paper and I'm writing you off. I'm writing you off for seeing that. You're done. 
You know, I am, uh, you are not, no longer on the radar for compassion, for the gospel, nothing, because I just see crazy. I go, huh, what? How could you say that? How could you think that? Well, you know, now I want to start an argument. You know, let me show you a thing or two. Well, just as I'm getting revved up, I look into the car window this close to me, this close, the car window, and it's a couple from our church. <laughs> whom I know very well. I went, hi. (laughs) But unfortunately, they had already fallen into the trap as well because they had already engaged her along the same lines. Now, here's what the Lord did afterwards while I'm riding away. Now, I'm going to tell you something, Pastor Ross, one more time. I want you to pray for her now. Okay, so I've been praying for her, as God reminds me, since that encounter. What a difference. Now, here's, here's where we fall short. We're distracted by the behavior, so we forget about the soul. And the point of our mission is gospel, not chickens. It, not chickens. It's not abortion. It's not homosexuality. It's not corrupt governments. It's not Democrat Republican, conservative, liberal. That's not it. It's not profanity, no profanity. It's not uh, how you dress or how you don't dress or whatever. Those are all distractions. All distractions to get you off because they can fix those issues and perish. That's the whole point of distracting us. Sinners, sin, that's their job description. What are we so surprised for? Do not be stumbled by the behavior and forget there's a soul there. There's, there's a chance for salvation. They're breathing. And why don't you reach out in prayer and try to engage the chicken lady in a way that, that, that kind of makes sense, that kind of is kind and respectful and loving and talk about I mean, I could have said, did you know that God was concerned about the cattle in the story of Jonah? I could have said that. And I hope I see her again. I'm looking for the chicken lady. <laughs> and I'm going to say to her, you know, I mean, you can't get very far because then God, you know, gives us them to eat. And so, you know, that's just the way it is. And we do have incisors, right? <laughs> I mean, they are flesh rippers. And someone who designed us apparently wanted us to eat meat. All right, so, I I mean, anyway. I want to read, I want to read one more thing. Do I have time? I do, I have like 20 seconds. Um, So if if you're not careful, you'll have your group that uh, you write off, right? And you roll your eyes every time they walk into the restaurant or whatever, you know, come on, you have them. All right, so whether it's Islam, or you see a burqa and you're like, done. There's no gospel, no comparing, no, no compassion, I should say, right? It depends. Um, with the emotion generated in the Christian community after the U.S. Supreme Court, okay, you can start being distracted now when you see people together uh, and you just want to write them off and you roll your eyes and you get angry. Oh, the devil's winning. Because there are two souls that are not going to benefit from your prayers, your compassion, your kindness to reach out. Hate the sin. Love the human being sinners who are there who need the gospel. That's a fine line. It takes a lot of work. But let me, give you a, let me read you a testimony, a letter that we got in the most bizarre way. I've shared this before. This letter is very, very old. When I was in Bible college, we went up to Castro Street in San Francisco to do some street witnessing during Halloween. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. I, I, haven't, I know why, because we were 20 years old and thought, hey, let's go up to the city and share the gospel. <laughs> so we, we did, and I, we walked by. My partner and I walked by. Her name was Diane. She's with the Lord now. She died a few years ago. And uh, 
we had Bibles and tracts, and we walked by this guy who was standing outside of a bar, and he had a big flower on, and he was crying, and he was kind of drunk, and I was like, ugh, ugh. And I started talking to him, and we said, hey, let's buy you a cup of coffee. He was interested. And so we went into a little cafe, and we bought him coffee. And he was open with, to the gospel. It was crazy. I mean, I could smell alcohol. It was like, really? Is this really happening? You know? And he was crying about his, his boyfriend just broke up with him. And, you know, it was kind of, how do you deal with this? And so I read to him Psalm 51. I had a King James pocket Bible. And I opened it up and I read Psalm 51. And one of the last verses in there says, then I will offer a bullock on thine altar. And he starts crying again. And he says, this, this was from God. God is speaking to me. He, he wants to offer me on the altar uh, and become a Christian. And I'm like, what's going on? And he said, my last name is Bullock. So, uh, so wow, you know? So we exchanged addresses, right? Six months later, and I'll read you the letter. It's the letter. I saved it. Yeah. He says, hey, he wrote to Diane, and Diane gave it to me. You may be wondering why it took so long to write. Well, I usually don't write at all, and when I do, it is about six months between letters, unless I really get enthusiastic now, but then again, blah, 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 blah. And then he says, the Lord reigns, let the people rejoice. Yes, I'm still alive and battling on the front lines. Spiritual warfare isn't easy. What? Who are you? <laughs> but it is worth it. Just seeing Jesus will be the biggest reward. God has done wonders since that, la- since that night on Castro Street six months ago. And he names the place. Then he says, what have I been through? You wouldn't believe it. The struggle is, underlined three times, that hard. Sometimes, but God is greater than my struggles, and I'm learning that all things really work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Drunk, gay, in front of a bar, complaining about his boyfriend who just broke up with him. Let me continue. So I'm beginning to praise him in my infirmities and weaknesses. Guess what? I'm beginning to like women. I love this guy. (laughs) And as someone I'm beginning to care about. Check this out. Pray for me in this area. That God would have his perfect will in this area of my life because I really don't want to get ahead of him. He got saved. Like this is a real Christian here. Also pray that God would keep me humble before him. As I said, the battle really gets rough sometimes. Loving Christ, David, David Bullock. Isn't that beautiful? Praise the Lord. I keep this letter. Look, you know what? It doesn't matter if your dad is the, the, the head of Hamas as the son of Hamas got saved. It doesn't matter what's your sexual orientation you hear the gospel, you respond, you get saved, you're a new creation, you limp along in the right direction with the rest of us, picking up our crosses and, and following him. Let us not write off those we don't understand, we can't relate to, nor do we respect. Those who have hurt us, those who don't have their acts together like we do, right? That's terrible. That's not pleasing to God. Instead, let us have compassion, grace, and mercy, and love. The same mercy and grace that was shown us, we must be willing to extend to others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love Jonah. Thank you that he had enough humility to share the story. So we know there was truly a happy ending because we have the book. And he's the one that made that possible. So we're glad, Father, that you confront us in areas that we need to grow. I know a host of us are struggling 
Lord, I struggle with this, with this command of yours to be like you. So help us to be obedient. It's not going to happen by our effort, but by a move of the Holy Spirit. May we find out how to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.